Good morning again, family. It is a distinct privilege to have sung with you and now to open the word with you. If you have a pew Bible, I think if you have a hardback, you're going to be on uh, page 411. If you have a, a leather back, it's going to be on uh, 621. I invite you to turn to Ezra chapter 5 is where we will be this morning. Let me just say uh, publicly as we um, begin this morning, I, um, I said to you, you're the, the importance of a resource that you are in the life of a church. I just want to say publicly to those who came with me from the Hill, uh, joined us, that you guys are a gift uh, to our church, a gift to me as a pastor. And I don't tell you that enough. So I do this often with my kids. I'll get one of them away from the other ones, and I'll say something that's sort of true, not really true. I'll say, you're my favorite sometimes. So I'll say to you guys, you guys are my favorite amongst the members of the Hill Church. I love you guys. Um, I want to talk to you this morning about <clears throat> laboring with a proper confidence. What does it look like to labor with proper confidence? Uh, confidence is necessary for the Christian life. Recently, our, our church... Uh, finished preaching through uh, the book of Hebrews where the author frequent, frequently points out this reality. The author speaks of a necessity of confidence that we must hold to the end. He speaks of a confidence necessary for us to, in fact, draw near to God. A faithful Christian living requires confidence. And what's true of Christian living, we might say in general, is all the more true uh, in terms of laboring together as a local church, as the body of Christ. And yet confidence, it's not always clean, we might say. Because the line between proper confidence in God and confidence in His call and confidence in His daily enabling grace for us to live the, as the people of God can so often be confused with mere confidence in ourselves. It's a young pastor Pastoring through 2020, I learned this painful lesson. Leading through that um, year exposed the fact that my confidence, that the confidence that I had, that I that marked my leadership, honestly, 2020 exposed that it was mostly merely a counterfeit. Through all the challenges that came with leading through a pandemic, polarizing election, social unrest of our nation, what became painfully clear was that I had been attempting to lead and labor from a confidence more in myself than the God whom I said I was serving under. And through a difficult season of ministry, God, by His grace, led me to the narrative of Ezra, Nehemiah. Our church had preached through Nehemiah a few years earlier, and the Lord had brought me back to that. And in Nehemiah and Ezra, um, it's there, within the narrative is something that can only be described as a peculiar confidence on really every page of the narrative, whether it's from Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, or the leadership overall, a strange confidence carries the narrative forward on every page. And one such moment I found especially uh, nourishing to my soul and instructive for me was from Ezra chapter 5. Brothers and sisters, laboring effective as God's people, to live faithfully as the church of Jesus Christ, we need proper confidence. 
Let me say it more specific to you. Pioneer Church, for you to become, to remain a healthy church in this community for the glory of King Jesus, you need proper confidence. But where does proper confidence come from? And how do we guard our lives individually? And how do you guard the life of this church corporately not to be led by a counterfeit confidence in merely yourselves? How do we live with a proper Christian confidence? Ezra chapter 5 provides us an answer. We learn in Ezra chapter 5 that proper confidence to live, proper confidence to labor as the people of God demands clarity concerning the nature and purposes of God in redemptive history. That proper confidence to labor as the people of God demands clarity concerning the nature and purposes of God in redemptive history. Now, Ezra chapter 1 begins with something of a new exodus being narrated. 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, he had marched his army into Jerusalem. He had razed the city to the ground, dismantling the temple piece by piece, destroying the city walls and marching Jerusalem's treasure and more importantly, its people some 800 miles to slavery in Babylon. But by the time Ezra chapter 1 comes around, the people, they begin fleeing Babylon. They begin returning to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the city around 537. By this time, the Babylonian Empire had been toppled and King Cyrus of Persia had assumed command. And with this change in world power, not unlike today, came a change in foreign policy. Unlike the Babylonians who exerted their power through subjugation, the Persians sought to exert their power by creating loyalty, thus allowing the people to return to the land and worship in their own manner. Under the providential hand of God, this resulted in three waves of Jews returning to rebuild the city. The first wave recorded in Ezra, uh, chapters 1 through 6, was led by Zerubbabel and Jeshu. It began pretty well, if you were to go back and read that narrative. The altar is quickly rebuilt. Attention is allowed to be turned to the temple as recorded in chapter 3. But then discouragement and opposition begins to mount in chapter 4. To the point, the final verse of chapter 4 concludes, then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. It ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And brothers and sisters, 16 years of disobedience is what represents that little white space between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of verse 1 where we're going to focus our attention this morning. Until the succession of King Darius in 522, the temple work ceased. But that all changes in chapter 5. Look at verse 1. It says, But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshu, the son of Zozadak, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. Sixteen years. After sixteen years, the rebuilding of the temple begins again. And it does so in the manner in which every work of God begins. By the proclamation of God's word, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, causing the people to rededicate themselves to the work. 
Brothers and sisters, this reminds us how no true work of God happens apart from the word of God. Ezra chapter 5 makes this clear for us. Here a disobedient, self-centered, divided group of procrastinating people. You say, that's pretty tough. Go back and read Haggai. That's his words. They are transformed into a repentant, unified, sacrificial force ready to work. And the means by which God does this is through the preaching of his word. God's word always precedes. God's word always produces God's work. No true work of God, be it in your heart, be it through your hands in this city, will happen apart from the word of God. But no sooner that the work begins, opposition amounts, amounts again. Verse 3. Right, to guard against potential uprisings due to, the, due to King Darius's transition to the throne, he established something, a governor's, or my, the text says satraps, to guard or keep order over the kingdom. And of course, news reaches the ears of the governor, Tatanai, regarding this structure being built. If you look down at verse 8, it's described with huge stones and timbers. It's going for this proceeding. And fearing a threat of insurrection... Uh, Tatanai and his associates show up to demand answers in verse 3. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish the structure? They're asking them straightforward. What are the names of the men who are building this building? Similar to the city officials in La Mesa, similar to the city officials in Rock Hill, these dudes want to see permits. Who said you could start building again? Now, Verse 5 to the rest of the chapter comprises the answer given by the leadership to this very question, which is where we're going to focus the rest of our time. And as I read it, beginning in verse 5 here, I want you to hear the undeniable confidence that marks their words. Brothers and sisters, put your eyes on verse 5. It says here, But God was watching over the Jewish elders. These men wouldn't stop them, until a report was sent to Darius so that they could receive written instructions about this matter. This is the text of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shesar Bozani, and their colleagues, the officials of the region, sent to King Darius. They sent him a report written as follows to King Darius, all greetings. Let it be known to the king uh, that we sent to the house of the great God in the province of Judah. It is being built with cut stones and its beams are being set up in, set up in the walls. This work is going, is done diligently and succeeding through the people's efforts. So we question the elders and ask, who gave you the order to rebuild this temple and finish this structure? We also ask them for their names so that we might write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the reply they gave us. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But since our ancestors angered the God of heavens, he handed them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Chaldeans, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of King Cyrus of Babylon, he issued a decree to rebuild the house of God. He also took from the temple in Babylon the gold and silver and articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and carried them to the temple in Babylon. He released them from the temple in Babylon to a man named Shesbazar, the governor of the appointment by the appointment of King Cyrus. 
Cyrus told him, take these articles, put them in the temple in Jerusalem, let the house of God be rebuilt on its original site. Then this same Shezbazar came and laid the foundation of God's house in Jerusalem. It, it has been under construction from this time until now, but it has not been completed. So if it pleases the king, let a search of the royal archives in Babylon be conducted to see if it is true that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the king's decision regarding this matter be sent to us. Father, simple prayer, Lord. By your word, through your Holy Spirit, what we know not, Lord, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, Please give us for the glory of King Jesus in your name and all the earth. Amen. It's rather impressive that contained here in the word of God, an official record by a known historical figure, Tatanai, is written to a famous world leader, historically documented Darius, uh, his response um, that has, comes from these Jewish leaders. But even more impressive is their response particularly verses 11 and 12, and the confidence that's contained in it. But there is something else here as well that I want you to see. There is an undeniable clarity underneath their confidence. You see, their confidence stems from clarity concerning at least three essential truths that I want us to see this morning and what I believe every one of us in this room needs to embrace individually but more importantly, collectively as a church in order to labor with proper confidence. And the first one is this, that proper confidence demands clarity concerning the supremacy of our God. When asked very pointedly, when asked directly to identify themselves, these brothers don't mix words at all. Offer up your names and information so we can report it to the powers that be. They are told, who are you? What are your names? They ask. Answer, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. That's who we are. Now, we must deal with that phrase, servant, but not before we address its qualifier. They describe themselves as servants of the God of heaven and earth, an extremely bold and yet, humble statement given the context. By this very phrase, they are confessing to a pagan governor who will be reporting their words to a pagan king with enormous power that Yahweh, their God, is no mere local tribal deity over the region. His authority covers the entire earth, they're saying. His reign is supreme over the heavens and the earth. Their confession is that they serve Yahweh, the self-existent one, the self-sustaining eternal God who is responsible for upholding the universe. It's a bold confession, no doubt. And it rings with a note of humble defiance as well. In the ancient world, for a nation to conquer another nation meant to the display of their God's power over the conquered nation's God. In this sense... Yahweh had been subjugated by the Persian gods would have been the outcome. But what they are confessing here is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, which seems to include only about 43,000 people at this time. Go back and read the, the genealogies that have uh, the count of the people that he alone is God. The God over this small remnant of people is the supreme one who, in fact, reigns over the entire earth. 
And they don't soft pedal this at all. Look at verse 12. Because your fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldeans, who destroyed the house and carried away the people to Babylonia. They make clear that this whole exile and destruction of their temple thing came not by the hand of any foreign king, but by the will of their very God. What seemed as nations flexing their power over Israel was in fact Yahweh orchestrating his divine discipline over his very people. Absent here is any sort of confusion regarding the nature of the God whom they serve. Their confidence is rooted in a clarity concerning the supremacy of Yahweh over the nations. But where did they find this clarity? Where was this at the past 16 years? As I said, the prophet Haggai had rebuked the people's procrastination. He had rebuked their self-centered lifestyles, excusing their inactivity as the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. While the house of God laid ruined, the people were dwelling in their paneled houses which some scholars believed were elaborate cedar paneling that was in fact purchased and intended for the reconstruction of the temple itself. But there was more to Haggai's message than mere rebuke. Twice in chapter 2, the prophet Haggai records a phrase from the mouth of God describing his sovereign activity, which echoes the response of these brothers in verse 11. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, God says, Yet once more, in a little while, He says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry ground, and I will shake the nation so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory as the Lord of hosts. Again, in verse 21, we read of Haggai, of of Haggai chapter 2, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and riders. Embedded in their response that we are servants of the God of heaven and earth is a deep-seated conviction in the supremacy of their God. They understood history itself to be moving at the pace of the purposes of Yahweh. That's who. Yahweh is shaking the universe for the advancement of His kingdom purposes, which includes His Ensuring certain things happen, as well as ensuring that certain things do not, in fact, happen. Look back at verse 5. It says there, But God was watching over the Jewish leaders. These men wouldn't stop them until a report was sent to Darius so that they could receive written instructions about this matter. As the Supreme One, God exercises here, I love what Derek Thomas calls his preventative providence. God's providential hand prevented Tatanai from stopping the work of rebuilding, as well as prevented the elders of the Jews from being tempted to give in to their threats and pressure, as had been what they had done in the past 16 years. These brothers knew, the text says, that the eye of their God, that He was watching over them, that He was upon them. Church, Small thoughts of God will never sustain your Christian life. Small thoughts of God will never sustain the ministry God has called you to at Pioneer Church. But articulating statements concerning God's sovereignty and resting in God's sovereignty are two different things. 
When difficulty arises in your life, do you tend to respond with clarity or confusion concerning the supremacy of God? Do difficult circumstances drive you to rest in the supremacy of God or do they tend to dictate how you view God? Church, we need clarity. As found in this text regarding the supremacy of God. That is where proper confidence begins. And that is what will sustain our labor as a church and our faithfulness as God's people. But again, we cannot miss where these brothers derived such clarity from. From the word of God, yes, amen. But it came from the word of God out of a season of difficulty, of disobedience, of pain. Through the word of God, they were able to process their pain, allowing it to produce clarity concerning God's role in the exile, as evidenced in verse 12. By being confronted with the word of God, they knew that it was their God who was supreme over the exile and over all the affairs of their life. Beloved, do you know that? Do you know that God is supreme over all the affairs of your life? And do you believe that truth? Do you rest in that truth? Do you believe that God is supreme over all the affairs of this world and all the affairs of your life? Don't waste difficult circumstances in your life. Allow the difficulty of hard seasons and pain to produce clarity. Clarity concerning the supremacy of the God in whom we serve, which is where proper confidence begins. And our clarity, brothers and sisters, concerning God's supremacy should far surpass what we find here in Ezra chapter 5. We know the Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of, his, of the Father's nature. We know the Supreme One who upholds the universe by the very word of His power. We know Jesus, who in fact bore the full punishment of exile in His very body on the tree to bring us true restoration and build us up again. As the church of Jesus Christ, we serve a God who not only says he's going to shake the heavens and the earth, but as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, is uniting all things in heaven and on earth through the ministry of the church, pioneer church. Our confidence necessary to labor effectively as God's people begins, demands clarity concerning the supremacy of our God, but it also includes clarity concerning the simplicity of our call. When asked to give their names, they respond, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. Again, don't miss the bold humility here. Given all that I just noted concerning these brothers' knowledge of who their God was and who was uh, behind the exile, we might expect a different response here. Uh, maybe political correctness. We're royal subjects of the Persian crown. True statement. Maybe prideful piety. We're rulers chosen by God to lead his special people to display his glory in his special city, Jerusalem, to all the earth. But we find neither of those here. Instead, we, when asked their names, they simply respond. We're servants of the God of heaven and earth. That's who we are. Now, let's be honest. This desire to remain anonymous to the kings 
speaks to the seriousness of the situation. It was a good thing not to pop your head up. But that's not all it says. Embracing this anonymous title of servant testifies to their clarity concerning the nature of their call. They were simple servants like all the rest of God's faithful ones in the Bible. Brothers and sisters, just read your Bible, trace it out. Moses, Joshua, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and on and on understood themselves as mere servants of God. These brothers knew their role in this moment of redemptive history was no different than all those who had gone before them. The life of faith, the life of faithful Christian living at its core in the Bible is servanthood, brothers and sisters. Our faithfulness demands we embrace the simple call of a servant and bask in the freedom of being a faithful, anonymous laborer for King Jesus. Honest question. Are you content with being an anonymous servant for Jesus? Do you see the beauty in embracing the sweetness of the day in, day out, simple, faithful ministry of a servant? Church, I I want my life to count for something. I want our church to count for something. In San Diego, and I want Pioneer Church to count for something, as I know you do. But that won't happen apart from us embracing our calling as simple servants. And this should not surprise us. For we serve Jesus, the suffering servant, who said he came not to be served, but to serve and to lay his very life down. Embracing our call to simple servants is the manner in which we testify to our belief in the power of the gospel in our lives. The good news of Christianity is that the perfect, just, and righteous God of the universe, whom we have all sinned against, He served us. And He served us by an act of undeserving, unimmeasurable grace. Our sin, your sin, declares you guilty before a holy God, demanding that God's just judgment be poured out on you due your sin. And beloved, God would have been perfectly just to do just that, to condemn us in our sin and to leave us eternally separated from Him. But sinner, hear me this morning. In an act of undeserving grace and unending mercy, God has not done that. He has served us by sending His Son to receive the judgment we deserved on the cross. Beloved, Jesus died not for His sin, but for His people's sin. He bore our sin and judgment upon the cross that we might receive His forgiveness, His restoration, intimacy with Him, and be brought into His eternal kingdom and be used for His eternal kingdom purposes now. Our life of servanthood testifies that we belong to Jesus, the suffering servant. Titles, accolades, platforms, and pride, brothers and sisters, can grow a crowd. It will not advance the efforts of growing God's kingdom one bit. Are you a person who needs to be known? Are you a person that needs to be elevated? Or are you content 
with being counted among all the faithful ones of the Bible as simple, anonymous servants of the king. Now, I want to be clear. Laboring as an anonymous servant is not easy. Hard work is part and parcel of a servant. Think of Paul's words to Timothy regarding a hardworking farmer. Hardworking is indispensable in farming. I know a lot about that in California. That was a joke. (laughs) But successful farming requires as much sweat as it does skill, one author says. Irregardless of the quality of the soil, irregardless of the difficulty of the weather, irregardless of the challenges of the farmer's life, the farmer must keep his hand to the plow. He gets up when others are sleeping. He goes to bed when others are sleeping. And farmers don't get the glory. I've never met one person yet when they bit into a tomato said, thank God for the farmer. Church, there is a sweetness in laboring hard when laboring for the right thing. And this text calls me personally, you personally. It calls us collectively as the body of Christ to embrace the simplicity of our call to just be anonymous servants and cherish the hard work of laboring for King Jesus. Pioneer Church, are you okay with being an anonymous church in this city? I'm not saying anybody doesn't know about you because they got to know about you to know Jesus. We want them to know about you. But are you okay with them knowing of you as a simple servant? If not, you may miss the beauty, the privilege, and the fulfillment of your call to be a simple servant. Clarity concerning the simplicity of our call is necessary to labor confidently, but thirdly, proper confidence also includes, stems from, requires clarity concerning the significance of our labor. Like I want to be clear, embracing the simplicity of our call in no way denigrates the significance of what we're called to take part in our labor, brothers and sisters. They responded here, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth, rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Now this statement tells us a few things. First, these brothers, they possessed the assurance that God would allow their efforts to succeed just as he did initially with Solomon when the temple was originally built. Secondly, and most importantly, they understood their labor with each brick they laid to be connected to a much larger work of God running across the pages of redemptive history. And church, we must as well. Now, it would be easy for them to be cynical here, I think. The first temple that was built and the purposes and promises associated with it didn't quite seem to pan out. The Babylonians saw to that. And now we're called and we're going to attempt to do this thing again? When, as the book of Ezra and Nehemiah tells us, they can already tell that what's being built is not going to be anything of the former glory of what it was. If their eyes had been fixed on earthly realities of alone, uh, alone, they would have missed the significance of what, in fact, they were taking part in. But their eyes were fixed somewhere else, as ours must remain. Their labor was informed and motivated by the Word of God through 
The prophets Haggai and Zechariah who pointed the people beyond the restoration and rebuilding they were taking part in to an even greater and glorious restoration. For instance, you might want to write these down. I'm not going to have all these. I'm going to read them, but I'm not going to, they're not going to be behind me. So write these down. Zechariah 8, chapter 7. We read, thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will save. Remember, we're talking about Haggai and Zechariah were the prophets by which the word of the Lord came to them. So Zechariah chapter 8, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. In faithfulness and righteousness they heard. Chapter 14, verse 8, where we read, On that day living water shall flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security forever. They understood that the significance of their labor went far beyond the stone and mason work of rebuilding a physical structure on a geographical location on the map. Their labor was significant because it was tied to the glory of their God and His sovereign, redemptive purposes throughout His people in history. But there was more to Zechariah's prophecy. From chapter 9, God explains how this great salvation and restoration would come by the hand of their king who would enter Jerusalem. We know this text. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he would come, as chapters 11 and 12 detailed, to deliver his people from evil shepherds by sending the good shepherd to redeem and rule over his people. And then in chapter 12, verse 10, God promises, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one who weeps over a firstborn. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The confidence these brothers possessed stemmed from a clarity concerning the significance of what, in fact, they were putting their hands to. It was true. They were, in one sense, simply rebuilding the temple that Solomon built many years ago. But what was also true was that with every brick they laid, they were participating in God's great work of restoration in and through his people. But the clarity that informed the significance of their labor, of their labor, brothers and sisters, pales in comparison to us in this room. What they could see in shadows and types, we know the full substance of in Jesus Christ. We know the significance of our labor because we know Jesus. That's why. Jesus is the king who entered Jerusalem, humble, mounted on a donkey. He's the good shepherd who came to lay down his life for the sheep. He is the God-man whom they looked upon and the one whom they pierced and mourned over. And by so doing, He is the one who opened the fountain of cleansing blood for the sin and unrighteousness of the nations. And Jesus is the true temple, brothers and sisters. In his incarnation, he he brought the full and final manifestation of the Father's glory to dwell with us. 
The true temple is not found in the stones and the beauty of Jerusalem's place of worship, but in the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is everything the temple was meant to represent. He is the majesty, the awesomeness, the purity, the brilliance of God, who on the cross triumphed over the curse, bringing full restoration to us, his people. Jesus is our great high priest. He is our atoning sacrifice. He is our king, brothers and sisters. He is the temple we labor for. And as the people of God, we labor to build God's new structure, the church, whom Paul says in Ephesians 2 is defined as a holy temple in the Lord that in him is being built up in a dwelling place for God by his spirit. That's you. Through the church and its proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Through you, through the church, and your proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the nations can now gather to worship the living God truly and rightly. And the glory of God in the person of his son can spread forth to all nations. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? Pioneer Church, it means that nothing we take part in as the body of Christ is insignificant. Every time you gather in this building to worship, every prayer meeting, every time you come early to greet people, every time you come to make coffee, to cook burgers and hot dogs for the community, to fill out a prayer request, to operate the soundboard, to run the slides, to serve the kids, to lead in singing or sing to one another, to serve in a journey group. Every member's meeting, every time you share the gospel, visit someone in the hospital, pray for a member, sacrificially give to church, it's all significant. Every gospel conversation you have with your kids, your coworkers, every task that you put your hand to is filled with significance, brothers and sisters, because it is all labor that points to the glory of God through the work of Jesus in his church. We're members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Over 2020, I was convicted by a verse in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 3. You probably know this verse. Following the third wave led by Nehemiah, Tobiah and Sanballat, you remember those fellas? They're trying to get Nehemiah to stop working by calling him to the plain of Ono. And remember his response. They try to get him to stop his work, and he, they say, come down and meet us in the plain of Ono. And he says, I can't come down. Why? He said, I am doing a great work. That's why. Church, do you recognize the greatness of the labor to which God has called you to? And do you know that the greatness of your labor has nothing to do with the amount you are doing or whom, in fact, you're doing it to? It has nothing to do with the size of your church, big or small. It's great because it's labor for Jesus. And brothers and sisters, like Ezra, like Nehemiah, 
There will be days you will experience when you will look at what you guys are doing with natural eyes and get discouraged. Remember after the temple was built? The generation who had seen the first temple, they wept and mourned. I mean, that had to be really encouraging for Nehemiah. After seeing the wall being built, Tobiah told Nehemiah, man, if a fox jumps on that thing, it'll fall over. It's going to crumble. Church, elders, church, do not fall prey to believing what you can physically see with your eyes and touch with your hands speaks to the greatness of what God has called you to. Size, big or small. It says nothing of the greatness of our service to King Jesus. As members of the household of God, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit, any, every, all work you do for Him is great. So, We must focus our efforts on laboring for Jesus, but we must do so by fixing our gaze forever upon the future. That's what this text tells us. Your labor, ultimately, is not for 1041 Sylvia Circle. Our labor at the Hill is not ultimately for 7485 Orion Avenue. It's ultimately for the advancement of God's glory to the nations. Brothers and sisters, our labor for the city, we labor for the city that is to come. The New Jerusalem, where all nations will gather and where there will be no need for a temple. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. I want you brothers and sisters to hear 1 Corinthians 4.1 as we close. Paul says, I don't know how the great apostle Paul thought of himself. So this is how one should regard us. Servants of Christ. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Church, we're servants of Christ, the King of glory. We're stewards of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has entrusted us the very words of life. You get to take part in proclaiming, announcing that the king has come and that he can deliver you from darkness to light. You are servants of Christ, but stewards of the mysteries of God. It's what we have the privilege of of taking part in. There's no more significant thing and laboring together for King Jesus as the people of God. To labor effectively as God's people, we do need proper confidence. Which means we have to have clarity, brothers and sisters. Clarity concerning the supremacy of the God whom we serve. Clarity concerning the simplicity of the call to be servants. But clarity concerning the significance of the labor that we get to take part in as the church, that you get to wake up day in and day out and take part in as the people of Pioneer Church.